All right, let's pray, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that you bring us together. Lord, to worship you, to be here in fellowship, to catch up, to talk, to share, to meet somebody new. But also, Lord, to sit at your feet. And Lord, we do pray your Holy Spirit would teach us and speak to us. Lord, may you stir in our hearts and our minds. We give you this time, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you uh, spent some time in the hospital or doctor's office lately or perhaps over the the period of time of COVID. Um, Hopefully you didn't, um, but I know many of you have, whether it's COVID-related or outside of COVID, you spent a lot of time in a medical office, a doctor's office, or a hospital, right? Um, There was a point, a stretch of time for Jamie and I uh, where she had to go to a doctor's office or the hospital or the ER or something for, for, you know, more often than we'd we'd want to, where it got to the point that that became our date night. (laughs) That was like the only time we can have like by ourselves, it was going to a doctor's office or a doctor's visit or the ER or the hospital or something. So it became a running joke for us, like, oh, you know, we're having our date night going over to Kaiser, you know. Uh, yeah, I know, that's kind of sad. But, uh, but uh, we, at least it was time together, you know. And if you spend enough time in, in a hospital, if you can get over whatever reasons you're there, if it's traumatic or something like that, and much of their time in, your, in the hospital setting, you're kind of sitting and watching, right? I don't know about you if you've ever had this time, but there were times when, you know, all we had to do is just kind of sit there and wait. And so there's times when I would sit in the ER and I would just listen, I'd just take it all in. I would hear all the stuff that's going on. Many sounds you don't want to hear, right? There's a lot of stuff that, you know, get this person in a room quick. But there's a lot of things that you see. A lot of activity, a lot of things going around. A lot of things are happening in the ER. And if you've ever kind of take notice, you kind of realize in a hospital setting, there are so many different things going on. You have the ER waiting room. Have you ever taken the time to look at an ER waiting room? Right? That's like sometimes people at their worst, right? They're, they're, not, they're not kept. Their hair's all over the place. They just got out of bed or something like that. It's, it's not a very pleasing, uh, pleasant sight to see. Then you go into the ER and, and you're seeing all the different patients, a lot of stuff happening there. And then you have like in some other part of the hospital, there's an OR where the really, really intense stuff is happening. And then you have all this other kind of stuff. And then you have the medical offices. When we look at a hospital, there's so many different things going on at any given moment. And then you have some that are just routine, right? You go into a hospital, maybe your doctor's there, their office is there, you're going just for a routine doctor's visit. Or you're scheduling operation or labs. So all different reasons why we go to, oops, I think I actually, okay, we're good, to a hospital or something. I remember one time in the operating room, I was just sitting there, and I was looking at all the different people in the waiting rooms. Have you ever done that? You try not to be creepy doing that, right? You don't want to be like staring at people. But I've done that sometimes where I'm sitting and all you have to do is and you look at all the different faces. What's amazing is kind of interesting is that each face, each person represents a story, right? They represent a life. There's a reason why they're there. And it's usually not for good reasons. 
So it's interesting how so many different things is going on in a given place, that hospital, all the different stories. And if there's like one thing in common everybody shares, you hope at least that when you go in, you hope that you'll leave in a better position than when you came in, right? When we go to the hospital or doctor, we hope that when we go there, when we leave, we leave in a better situation than when we came, right? That's commonplace. That's at least what we hope for. Now, when I think about the world that we're living in, and I've taken some time and I've thought about things, I think of the people, what comes to mind the most when I think of the world, I think of those who feel lost. I think about those who feel broken, hurt, desperate. And among these group of people that I think of, the lost, the broken, the desperate, I kind of think of these two two groups of people. One, the unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, who don't know the hope of Christ, who are broken, they're hurt, they're lost. And then I think of also the struggling believers. Those who believe in Jesus, but they're still experiencing the same problems. They're broken. They feel lost. They're hurt. They're sick. And of course, there's another group, and there's another group there, and and they're the ones that are kind of like, you know, they're relatively healthy. Right? They're relatively healthy, uh, or at least they're, they're trying to maintain their health. They're trying to grow. They're trying to get better, and they're not necessarily experiencing those things that those other groups are talking about. Perhaps you've heard the metaphor about a church. How many have heard that a church should resemble a hospital more than a country club? I don't know if you've heard that analogy before. You know what a country club is? I personally haven't experienced a country club, but from what I understand, what I gather, a country club is a place where people, they can go to run with the same circle of friends, same group of people, right? They can go to country club, they're, they're among a group of people with the same kind of lifestyle, same kind of social class, same kind of uh, you know, circle of friends, and they can go to that cult, the country club to engage in activities where people have the same kind of like-mindedness, they like to do the same things, they run in the same circles, and of course there's this, this sense that we can maintain our lifestyles as they please, right? It's a lifestyle to be a part of of a country club. So a lot of people kind of compare, you know, what should church look like? Should it look like more like a hospital or a country club? One place people go to get better. The other place people go to pretend their life couldn't be better. Right? You go to a hospital to get better. People go to a country club. They often go there to pretend that their life couldn't be better. Got everything right. Everything is good. Now, if we consider our church, which do we more closely resemble? What would be the culture of our church? What can someone experience when being a part of our church? Is this a place where people can go to get better? Or do we see more like a place where people pretend like life couldn't be better? This question comes to mind a lot when I look at this passage today. We'll take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, 
And he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now here's a similar scene to Jesus calling Andrew, Simon, James, and John, if you remember that from a few weeks ago. Right, Jesus is going along the seashore. He sees Andrew and Simon, these fishermen, and another pair of brothers, John and James. And he tells them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And they got up and immediately started following. So here's a similar scene. Jesus is walking along the seashore. He has a following with him. And he sees Matthew, a tax collector. And he says, follow me. And he said, and we see it, and he arose and followed Jesus. No hesitation. Here's Levi. He's on the clock. He's at work. He's in his tax office. Here comes Jesus. He says, hey, follow me. He doesn't clock out. Well, maybe he clocked out. I don't know how they did back then. But he got out. He left his work. And he followed Jesus. And it makes me kind of wonder, why did Matthew follow Jesus? What led him to follow Jesus? Now, if I think of Andrew and Peter, James and John, it's a little more understandable for me. They had heard Jesus. They heard him teaching. They heard some of the things that he was doing. And there was this possible belief, could this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? And they left and followed him. We have no indication as to what was going on with Matthew. Most likely you heard about Jesus, right? Word was getting around. But we have no inclination, no indication of why he left to follow. Now you would think, okay, he had a lot to gain to follow Jesus, right? But we don't have any indication Matthew had any clue as to what his life would be like to follow Jesus. But he did have an indication of what would happen if he left. Right? He's leaving his job. As far as we know, right? What would drive Matthew to, to a, a total change to follow Jesus? Now, being a tax collector came with a price. He most likely made a lot of money. But that came at a price. He was a worker on behalf of the Roman government, collecting taxes from the people. And the tax collectors were notorious for taking more from the people than they were supposed to, than was needed. That's how they got rich. Jews associated tax collectors with dishonesty, disloyalty, harassment, robbery. They were considered unclean by the Pharisees. And they were grouped together with other quote-unquote sinners. So they were not esteemed very highly. Among the many different taxes from the Roman government, there was a tax on goods going in and out of ports and cities and trade uh, routes. So Capernaum being a commercial city with a lot of fishing and so forth, it's understandable. Here Matthew is, he's stationed right there where people are coming, going, goods and services coming, and he's taxing the people based on their goods and services. So here's Matthew. What drove Matthew to leave? And I was thinking about this, and people come to Jesus when they're confronted with their need for change. 
They come to faith in Christ because inside they realize there's a need for a change in them, right? Possibly for Matthew. Perhaps he was aware that something was wrong inside. That he was doing things that probably wasn't good, right? Perhaps he sensed the opportunity that maybe this is the opportunity for a change in my life that kind of haunts me, if you will, right? Sin takes a toll. It takes a toll. When you're constantly doing things that you know is not right, it's not good, it should take a toll on you. It should bother you. When your life is going in a way that you know is not right, you're behaving, you're treating people in a way that is not good, it should still bother you, right? It takes a toll. You should be concerned if it doesn't take a toll on you. If you're doing things that you know you shouldn't do and it doesn't bother you, that's when it becomes dangerous. When you've lost all sensitivity to what is right, what is just, what is good, right? So perhaps this is why Matthew was willing to leave his job, because perhaps he's confronted with an opportunity to change. Verse 15, And it came about that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So after Matthew leaves to follow Jesus, he opens his home for a meal. Luke chapter 5, verse 29 in his account says, And Levi, which is Matthew, gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So when Jesus says, hey, Matthew, come and follow me, Matthew just says, hey, you know, Jesus, uh, I'm going to follow you, but hey, you, you want to grab a quick bite to eat? Can I just have you come over? He doesn't do this discreetly. What does he do? He opens up his home to a meal and he invites Jesus. And there seems to be a significant crowd there because we'll see here who's all involved here. He doesn't say, let's just take a quick bite to eat at the local McDonald's. He opens his home for a meal. Now, this is significant, especially in that culture. To share a meal with somebody, to open your meal table with somebody was a great sign of fellowship, of friendship, of peace. When people opened up their home and their table and you shared a meal at their table, often it was with those in the same social class. It was a gesture of friendship. Right? When someone in a lot of different cultures share the same kind of mentality and tradition. When you share a meal together, it's not just you're eating together, you're staring at each other eating awkwardly, you're talking. It's a gesture of friendship, often a gesture of peace, right? When we go outside and eat together, we're not just surrounding a table just eating like this, right? We're talking. We want to share our lives together. So Matthew doesn't just invite Jesus over a secret meal, but he had other guests. We presume he invited Jesus, his followers were welcome to be there. We'll see later on, there were some Pharisees who came by. Some followers of John the Baptist came by. But there's also another group of people. We can maybe assume that Levi also invited his circle of friends. Hey, guess who ran, I, got, I ran across today? 
Jesus. Yeah, that same Jesus. What am I doing them? Come on, find out. I'm inviting him to my home. I'm going to have a big feast. Come to see what he's all about. So we see here, there's not just Matthew, the tax collector, but he has some other tax collectors with him and some quote-unquote sinners. Those who are not looked at very highly. They were not regarded well, whatever they may do. We don't know the exact sin that they were involved in, but we just know they're classified as the sinners. Now, what does this look like? When he was there, what's the scene? Was it like Jesus, his disciples, and the sinners and tax collectors were like in other rooms? You, you guys could sit at the, the other table over there. Right? Not with Jesus, but you can be in the other room. That's not the scene we're looking at. They weren't isolated, but Jesus was reclining at the table with them. Now at the time, you know, it's, it's low to the table, to the ground, they had cushions, so forth. So leaning back, reclining back as they ate was a very customary scene. So Jesus is there among them. Now people look at the scene that Jesus was with these tax collectors, these sinners, and they look at this scene and they use it to kind of justify who they hang out with. Have you ever heard that before? Right? You, you run with a certain crowd, you're like, well, Jesus hung out with the sinners, right? So I can do that as well. Perhaps you have heard that before. Perhaps your children may have said that to you. Perhaps you said that to your parents. Why are you criticizing my friends? Jesus hung out with the sinners, right? Perhaps you've said that yourself. But before you claim this story as justification for who you hang out with and what you do, let's understand the context before we apply any lessons. Jesus wasn't just chilling on a Friday night with these people, right? We have no indication that Jesus spent the weekends at the clubs with the Pharisees or with the, uh, you know, the, the sinners. We don't have that exact picture. The question isn't, did Jesus associate with sinners? The question is, why did Jesus associate with the sinners? Why was he there among them? Along with Jesus' disciples and followers, there were some Pharisees present. And the Pharisees had this exact same question. Verse 16, And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began to say to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Now, if we're honest, if we placed ourselves in this situation, our reaction to the scene may resemble the Pharisees more than we would like to admit. Because again, the cultural mindset, who you ate with, spoke a lot, right? Who you hang out with, who you're eating and dining with, who you open your table to, meant a lot in that culture. So think of the Pharisees, these religious leaders who perceive the tax collectors as unclean themselves who would never open up their table or their homes to them. And they see Jesus, who seems to be this teacher of God's word, this worker of God's work, eating with the quote-unquote sinners. Why is he doing this? Why is he associating with these people who are unclean, who've cheated you, who've taken your money? Why is he eating with them? Now, if there's a 
a more, is there a more telling social dynamic than the lunch tables at school? You remember those days. I know some of you are in those days. Is there a more telling scene than the lunch tables at school? Right? I used to work at school, you know, during lunchtime. I had to, had a, you know, monitor all the lunch crowd and stuff. And every year, it's the same thing. This group of friends represents a certain group. Then you have this group of friends. And then you have this group of friends and this group of friends. And it's like who you eat lunch with becomes so important. Right? That's why the first weeks of school, when you're a new student, is so like there's so much anxiety. Because in class, you're with a group of people and you're in class. But when that's all done and it's lunch, it's like, who do I have to be with? Can I eat with this group? Can I hang out with this group? Should I be seen with this group? I can't be seen with this group. That's for sure, right? And so the Pharisees, they're like, what is Jesus doing eating with this group of people? And we can all be guilty of guilt by association, right? We can look at somebody and who they may be hanging out with, and we can think, why is this person there with them? Are they doing the same things as they are? They must be this type of people. And we've all been guilty of that at some point in time. And this may be fair or may not be fair. I used to warn students when I was working, I said, look, you know, because whenever I interact with students a lot of times because they're in trouble, consequences of what they've done. Sometimes I have to ask questions. Sometimes I had to call in students and ask them something that they didn't do, but they were there. They were grouped in with it. And I had to come to uh, uh, find out whether they were involved or not. And many times I had to warn students, say, look, I understand you want to be friends, but just know where you put yourself may open up opportunities that you're going to get pulled into something. You're going to get involved in something, whether you like it or not. You got to be careful. But see, we've all been in that kind of situation and we've advised people in that situation. But so here's Jesus. Why was Jesus eating with these tax collectors, these sinners. Here's Jesus' response. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, we need to understand the context before we say, well, I can hang out with whatever I want because Jesus hung out with whoever he wants. We need to understand Jesus' answer to that why. Why was Jesus with them? Jesus wasn't hanging out with them so that he could condone what they were doing. He wasn't condoning their way of living. We have absolutely no indication that Jesus was engaging in things that these people were doing also. This may sound controversial, but Jesus' message while being there wasn't simply, I love you just the way you are. You don't have to show hands, but how many ever heard that before? Maybe you said that. Jesus loves you just the way you are. I heard a song of that this morning coming on, on the way. I smiled like how ironic, right? This phrase is thrown around a lot, but we need to be careful in what, how we use this phrase, Jesus loves you just the way you are. If you're a parent, you've said this to your child, hopefully. 
If you haven't said this to your child, maybe you need to do that today. Jesus loves you just the way you are. When a parent says that, what are they saying? They're saying, you don't have to look differently. You don't have to be taller or shorter. You don't have to change your hairstyle. You don't have to, well, maybe some of your parents are like, yeah, yeah, you do, you need to. I don't know. No comment on that. But a lot of people, when they say, you don't have to change, Jesus loves you just the way you are. That means you don't have to change how God made you. He loves you. You didn't have to be better for him to love you. You didn't have to earn your way for him to love you. You didn't have to get straight A's or straight B's or even if you got straight D's. God did not love you any less. So when we say Jesus loves you just the way you are, it means that you didn't have to make qualifications for him to love you. Right? John says we love because what? He first loved us. He first loved us. And just as a parent, you learn this when you become a parent, you love your child first. I hope. (laughs) You have a head start. God gave you enough time for you to love your kid before they ever come to love you. Right? That's a picture, right? God loves us before we ever came to any thought of loving him. Jesus loved us despite our sin. When we say Jesus loves you the way you are, it means that he loves you despite the sin that you're in. However, what does that not mean? When we say Jesus loves you just the way you are, it should not mean that Jesus loves you so you can just be whatever, whomever, and do whatever you want. Jesus will love you anyways. There's an asterisk with that. When Jesus was there with the sinners and the Pharisees, what does his response say? I did not come, a physician, when a physician comes, who's in need of a physician? Those who are sick. He equates himself as a physician. He says, I did not come, come to call the righteous, but what? The sinners. In Matthew chapter nine, Matthew includes this. He says, but go and learn. Jesus talking to the Pharisees as they're asking, why is Jesus with these people? He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's telling them, the Pharisees are asking, go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. This word compassion in Greek means mercy, kindness. I love this definition. It is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. I love that. Compassion, saying you're seeing somebody who's in need. They know they're in need. And as I look at compassion on you, I have what you, I can give you what you need, right? The sense of compassion, the sense of extending to someone Who's in need? So Jesus responds to the Pharisees when they're questioning, why are you among them? He says, look, learn what compassion means. See what they need and be willing to be able to offer them exactly what they need, right? Jesus shows compassion on those who recognizes their need. And he shows them, I am able to meet your needs. See, Jesus is there. He's calling them 
to a change that they need. He's not there to just to socialize and hang out with them and be one of them. There's the difference. But he's there to show compassion. See, sometimes in our attempts to be morally right, Christians can fail at expressing compassion. We see the sin of others. We're really good at recognizing that, right? We're really good at recognizing what's wrong in people. And rightfully so, right? It's good to be able to identify that. However, we can tend to push people away from God instead of helping them bring, bring them closer to God. We're really good at pointing things out what's wrong, but we can often fail to show compassion and bring them to the God who they need in their life. And for those of you and those of us who are around people who need Christ and we're around them, we want to say, well, we want to be a witness, right? But if you're just being among them and not helping them to know Christ, you're not showing compassion. You're just being one of them, right? And there are some people who who believe that, well, you should just stay away from unbelievers. Stay away from that influence. I mean, your parents have said that, maybe you've said that, whatever it is. How easy is that? Is that possible today? To just like not be around any unbelievers? It's almost impossible. Some of you, that's your home, right? Some of you, that's your coworkers. Some of you, that's your closest friends. That's your best friends. So what should we do? What... What should our approach be with others? And I would say, look, let's model Jesus' heart and mission. Jesus sees their need for forgiveness, their need for change, and he's ministering to them, to those who are willing to hear, willing to follow, willing to be changed. My advice to you all, if you have a a circle of friends or a family, whatever it is, have a missional perspective in mind when you're with them. Be able to see, look, their needs, how they need Christ. And that your your place there, your relationship there can be used by God to show them Christ. You can't change them, right? You can't change them. You can't persuade them. But perhaps the Holy Spirit will, right? Perhaps they will see that. But the second thing I would suggest to you all is be aware of the influence or lack of influence. In other words, be aware when they're influencing you more than you are influencing them. Because if they're making more of an influence in your life than you are of theirs, if you're not showing Christ enough and and they're influencing you, then you need to be careful. Right? You're no longer Jesus in the scene. You're just... You're you're a person who's involved with things that people are involved in. And you got to be careful. Right? The one who feels sick knows they're sick and they're willing to seek a doctor. I'm the type of person that I got to be like dying to go to a doctor. You know what I mean? I got to be like coughing up a lung before I go to a doctor. James, like, you know, Mike, you got to go see a doctor. No, 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 I'm fine. 105 fever? Ah, I'll get over it. COVID, eh, I'm good, I'm fine. Yeah, I can't get up, but that's okay. 
You know, you can't help someone who doesn't want the help. Ever had that happen? But the one who's willing to seek help, and perhaps that's you in that circle of friends, you're showing them, look, the God that I know and I've experienced has what you need, offers what you need. Let's wrap up with this word, a couple things. What does Jesus reveal about himself in these encounters thus far? One, we see Jesus has the power and authority to cleanse. We saw that with the leper, right? The leper comes to Jesus. Jesus touches him, heals him, deems him clean, restores him. We see Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. Last week we saw the paralytic. He's brought in. He can't walk. But the first thing Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the third thing we see, Jesus came to heal and to call the sinners. You see the stage, the scene of what we're seeing in Mark. Jesus' mission, who he is, is being revealed from the very beginning in his ministry. Jesus came to heal, to cleanse, to call the sinners to repentance, to call the sinners to, let me heal you, not just your physical body, but your heart, the forgiveness you need. Now let's take a step back for a second. I'm going to end with this. What could we gain from this church as a church community? Kind of think about this picture of the scene of this passage. Levi's house. Here's a dinner table with Levi the tax collector. And here his guest of honor is Jesus. And among Jesus are his followers some of these followers are coming following from a distance. Some of these followers would be known as the disciples, the 12 disciples. And then you have these Pharisees, these people who believe that they are more righteous than everybody else. And then I'm sure you have everyone else in between. Doesn't this kind of look like any typical Sunday in any church in America? You have some who are there because they want to hear, some who are sick who don't know it, there's some who's judging everybody else, then there's Jesus and all anybody else in between. So what can we look like as a church? Here's a model that I would like us to kind of think about. Instead of saying, you know, Jesus, come, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Kind of think of it this way. Come as you are, believe not as you come. That's why I hope our mentality is. Come as you are. You don't have to like, obviously you don't have to dress up a suit. I, I, I thanked everybody, you know, going, coming in as a pastor. What does the pastors wear on a Sunday? You don't have to wear a tie every day? Great. <laughs> you got me. I accept. Now that wasn't the only condition. Come as you are. You feel broken inside? Absolutely come as you are. But I want our mentality to be that, you know what, we're not going to leave the same way we came. At least that's not what we want. When you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor, you hope that when you go and you leave, you're going to leave better off than when you came. And I want our mentality is just come as you are, but not just stay as you are. Because that's not what God offers us. He wants to better us, heal us, help those things. I want us to be a place where it's okay to say I'm not okay. How many conversations have you had this morning? What's the first thing you ask? Hey, 
How you doing? Has anyone this morning said, not so good? Probably not, right? What's our first thing? I'm okay. I'm good. Are we really good? Are we really okay? A lot of times we're not. But we pretend to be because we feel like that's what we have to do. We have to pretend we're okay. We have to pretend everything's good because we're Christians. Life is supposed to be good. It wants to be a place that, you know, it doesn't mean we have to divulge all our problems, right? Someone says, how are you doing? Oh, let me just tell you. And you're just telling all your secrets and all your sins and all that stuff, right? I'm not saying that it has to be that way. But I want this to be a safe place to say, I'm not doing so good. I'm not great. And it's okay if I don't have to pretend that I'm not okay or that I'm okay. I want this to be a place where we can learn, grow, and worship the Lord together. I thought of this in the title of the message of an ICU. One, the I, intentional. Intentional in that we want more of Jesus so that we can reflect Jesus. The C, Christ-like care. We're going to be intentional and we want to show Christ-like care. We want to invest in each other. When you're not feeling well, we can show Christ-like care and say, you know what, I can invest my time into caring for you to be Christ-like. And the third, a unit that we can do this together. We can build a sense of trust and honesty with one another. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay. You can struggle in your faith, that's okay. But we can do this together and show Christ to each other. Because why Jesus was with them? So that he could bring healing to them. Give them what they need. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the example that you have set for us, Lord God. Lord, I pray, Lord, we all know people in our lives who need you, Lord, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether Christians or they don't know how to label themselves. Help us, Lord God, if we're in those situations to represent you, Lord Jesus, to see their needs, see their needs for Christ in their life. And may we show that same compassion. And guard us, Lord God, from influences that would hinder us and stumble us, Lord. We thank you, Father God. As we stand and as we worship, Just let the words kind of marinate in your hearts and your minds as you worship him. Just reflect on his goodness and his compassion for you. He sees you. He knows you. Let's stand and let's worship.